Modern medicine is advancing at faster speeds than ever before. Yet the world still sees the healthcare experience as difficult and dated. The Real Chemistry podcast shares interviews with industry leaders who are innovating in healthcare. Join Real Chemistry's Chief Marketing Officer, Aaron Strout, as he explores how AI and ideas can come together to transform healthcare into what it should be. Hello, this is Aaron Strout, host of the Real Chemistry podcast. And today you're going to listen to my colleague, Brandon Pletch, who is our practice leader of scientific visualization at Real Chemistry. He's a great guy, very smart, one of our leaders in AI. And today he has the pleasure of interviewing someone that hopefully you're familiar with. And if not, I implore you to spend some time getting familiar with him. Our guest today is none other than Peter Lee. He is the corporate vice president of research and incubations at Microsoft. His role is, of course, to incubate new research-powered products and lines of business in areas such as AI, computing foundations, health, and life sciences. So hopefully this is very relevant to all of you listening in today. Prior to joining Microsoft in 2010, Peter held senior roles at DARPA and Carnegie Mellon University. He is also a member of the National Academy of Medicine and serves on the board of several prestigious institutions, among many other accolades that I can't get into today. And so during the conversation, Brandon gets into what that role looks like, what AI, particularly generative AI's role is in the healthcare space, which is something that's a uh, important topic right now. They talk a little bit about his book, The AI Revolution in Medicine, GPT-4 and Beyond, the empathy, you know, can AI help with the empathy angle and some very fascinating scenarios that Peter brings up talk a little bit more about some of the ethical considerations, but the thing that I think you'll really enjoy is the very last couple of questions. I won't spoil it, but Brandon puts a twist on my usual personal questions that we ask, and he does a great job. So hopefully you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. And as always, we appreciate the feedback, so feel free to reach out. Hello, Peter. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Uh, hi, Brandon. It's uh, really great to be here. Thanks. I'm very excited to discuss with you uh, AI and healthcare uh, here on the one-year anniversary of ChatGPT's fully public debut. I believe it was yesterday that it's been one year since it became uh, released to the public. And of course, it's been a little bit over a year that there have been other tools available like Dolly and the like. But before we get into all of that, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about your role as Corporate Vice President of Research and Incubations at Microsoft. Like if a stranger in an elevator asks you what you do for a living, what do you say? <laughs> right. Uh, well, I lead the part of Microsoft that uh, does fundamental research. And so that basically means three things. Um, one is we just do open research and we publish openly just like uh, researchers at universities. So in that way, we advance the state of the art and contribute to human knowledge. But we do that with an aim to solving problems for Microsoft or inventing new things for Microsoft. And sometimes when we invent new things, they start to become the seeds of new products or even new lines of business. And uh, when that happens, research becomes what we call an incubation. It's a fantastic place. We've been uh, a laboratory, uh, actually nine laboratories around the world. But when we started, uh, it was 33 years ago oh, wow. this year, uh, which is just an eternity in the, in the tech industry and then still going strong. Absolutely. 
You know, you've spoken a lot about AI and particularly generative AI in healthcare. You've co-authored the recent book, The AI Revolution in Medicine, GPT-4 and Beyond. This year, you've announced another step forward in Microsoft's ongoing partnership with Epic, a major player in the world of software that helps manage patient medical records. So I have to ask, why is healthcare of particular interest to you when it comes to the application of artificial intelligence? You know, you know when you think about the things that are really important in life, uh, maybe two, at least for me, that really rise to the top when it comes to the potential for technology to do, to do some good in the world are education and medicine. And medicine is something that I fell into um, while I've been at Microsoft for 13 years and in research most of the time. I did have a five-year period when I was taken out of research and put on assignment to help rethink what Microsoft should be doing in the field of healthcare and medicine in the era of AI in the cloud. Good. And you know, if you think about Microsoft, uh, I'm sure you've been to a doctor, uh, maybe you've been hospitalized. You yep. see Microsoft technology everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's always Windows uh, in the room. Right, right. And behind the scenes, uh, there are other things. But the question that I think was asked by Satya Nadella, our CEO, is given the rise of the cloud and what's emerging in AI, is there something deeper that should be happening? Um, and that ends up being a really important question. And that assignment you know, sort of sucked me in. Yeah. I, as I got deeper and deeper into it, I started to realize, you know, in the year 2000, less than 10% of our health records were digital. Mm-hmm. If you're old enough, you might even remember seeing like a room in your doctor's office uh, complex somewhere, filing full of cabinets, paper yeah. file folders, yeah, yeah. and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and today, it's approaching 99% oh, wow. of health records are digital. So there's been, you know, we tend to think of healthcare as moving really slowly, but actually it's gone through a massive digitization. A lot of people are wearing uh, Fitbits and Apple Watches. If you do get hospitalized, all of that stuff around you, around your hospital bed, is all digital now. There's just so much digitization. So now the question is, can we put all that digital data to good use? And that question, I think, is just so important. Uh, If we're able to actually harness all that data for the greater good, lead to new medical discoveries, make it easier for us to navigate healthcare, uh, make healthcare cheaper and more efficient, improve the working lives of doctors, nurses, then, you know, I think we'll have done something good. Yeah, I think that's listening to you describe this vision. I I try to imagine myself as a patient, as you said, I think all of us have had some kind of uh, medical hospital experience. And if I imagine myself as a patient who, let's say I'm headed into the hospital with chest pains, am I going to notice a difference in my experience thanks to AI someday, or should I already? I think it's already starting to happen. And maybe this is a great way to get right into generative AI. One of the things that's happening um, here at Microsoft, but also a bunch of other great companies, uh, both large and small, is uh, when you see your doctor, I don't know how it's gone for you, Brandon. When I last had my last physical exam just a couple months ago, I love my doctor, but she's actually there in the exam room sitting at a desk staring at a laptop mm. computer. Yep. And, and asking me questions. We're having a conversation, but it, there's no eye contact really. And the reason that that's happening is in order to get paid, 
she has to fill out uh, something called a clinical encounter note, then enter that into a, an electronic health record system. And if she doesn't do that while we're meeting, she has to take that home. Mm-hmm. And in fact, taking home even has a phrase uh, in the medical community. It's called pajama time. Yep. And that's a terrible burden. In fact, there have been numerous studies now that show that doctors, uh, for example, in primary care are spending upwards of 40% of their working days on documentation. Today, uh, you can now in more and more places walk in and a computer powered by generative AI will be listening to the conversation between you and the doctor and setting up that clinical encounter note automatically. Mm-hmm. Uh, here at Microsoft, uh, we have a product called Nuance DAX, uh, which is short for Dragon Ambient Experience that does that, but there are others emerging also. And these things, at least in the early deployments, in some cases uh, are bringing tears to doctors' eyes. It's, it's something that is just, just eliminating the kind of clerical burden that, honestly, uh, most doctors didn't sign up for and allowing them to just connect and be present uh, with their patients. And that's just one simple example. There's so many others. But if you think about Microsoft's business of really helping workers, especially in their information tasks, uh, that just really strikes at, at the core of what we do. Well, yeah, you know, your, your description there too, it's not, it seems like it's not even just about lowering the burden of paperwork for doctors, but what you described is my experience as well. I, I have several encounters I can think of where it was me sitting on a bench and a doctor staring into a screen. Right. The ability to, to just make a better connection, it, it reminds me of, you know, in, in your book and in other interviews, you talk about GPT-4 as having the potential to help people be more empathetic. Can you maybe uh, dig into that a little bit? Sure. So uh, you mentioned GPT-4, and that's this really amazing AI model from OpenAI. And maybe it's worth saying um, GPT-4 is available through the ChatGPT Plus application for OpenAI, but also through the Bing uh, search engine. And uh, you're right, in our book, you know, the very first thing when I first got access to this, this was even before the public release, I and my colleagues here at Microsoft Research, the first thing we thought to figure out is, does this thing know anything about medicine at all? Right. Yeah. And so the first thing we did is, you know, we had the system take the U.S. medical licensing exam, which is this three-part multiple choice exam. And it was really amazing to us that it could get about 90% of the questions right. And, and to put that into context, uh, that would place GPT-4 well above the 95th percentile of human test takers. So really, really good. But over time, and especially over the past year, as we've really gone deeper into what you w- would you actually use this for, right? if you wanted to improve healthcare, that pure medical knowledge, you know, passing tests, and it has turned out to be less and less important over time. Uh, there is a tendency in the computer science world to focus on these kinds of knowledge tasks, but if you just take a step back and think about it, the practice of medicine, a very small part of it is based on sheer medical knowledge. Right. There are so many other things. And one of the most important things is the connection between a doctor and patient. So for example, uh, you might see a doctor, you might get treated, or maybe you're uh, getting out of a hospital. One thing that you'll get afterwards is something called an after-visit summary. It's an email or a letter 
<laughs> that will tell you how to take care of yourself after the treatment. You know, here are the medications you should take. Here's the schedule. Here's what you should do with any wounds that need dressing. And, and here's when you should see me again. Here's what to watch out for. If you have any of these symptoms developed, please call me and so on. That's another big burden that doctors and nurses uh, have to deal with. And it's difficult because you want to make sure in those after-visit summaries that the information is correct and it's based on the actual clinical history. Oh, so these are typically like, or traditionally anyway, done sort of manually by the healthcare professional. That's right. In fact, uh, you mentioned the company Epic before. Epic has an application that's especially designed to write those emails basically with the appropriate extraction of data from the clinical history that's recorded in the EPIC system. And so in the busy life of a doctor or nurse, you just have to just push those things out. And you might not just take the extra little bit of time to remember in your last conversation with the patient that, oh, this patient is about to go to uh, England to see uh, her first grandchild that's just been born next month. And so to even just add that extra little bit of personalized kind of congratulations and best wishes on becoming a new grandparent, those kinds of little touches, what we are finding in these early deployments uh, is that a model like GPT-4 is able to set those up. And so in some early studies uh, at places like UC San Diego, Stanford, University of Wisconsin Medicine, and, and others, patients are actually in the studies are rating the after-visit summary notes written by GPT-4, at least drafted by GPT-4, then approved by the human doctor, to be more empathetic, more human, because wow. they add those extra touches. And it's not the case that they are more human or more empathetic, Sure, but they have the tireless ability to just take that little bit of extra attention to insert those personal touches for the doctor's approval. And uh, it just seems to really make a difference. Uh, one more thing to say here is that another area of empathy that we've discovered over the past year and a half of research on this is that doctors themselves sometimes have a struggle to know what to say to a patient that's in serious trouble. Sure, yeah. Patients that are desperate or maybe the parents you know, of a child patient. And again, in consulting with GPT-4, we find that doctors are able to really find some, some peace in just being reminded by GPT-4 and having that dialogue. Mm. Here's how you should approach this. Here are the three things you should make sure to talk about. And uh, you should make sure to take care of yourself in this as yeah. well. Sure. Do you think people might hesitate to take empathy advice from machines? It, it, that's such a, an important question. <laughs> let, let me tell you, at least when we started our research on this, this idea would never have occurred to me, uh, never entered my mind. And I think uh, most human beings, and myself included, the first time I encountered this, uh, I didn't know what to think. Really? Yep. Uh, there was a part of me that smiled and was amazed. There is a part of me that frankly felt a little bit creeped out. Yeah. And as time has gone on, you just start to think, this is actually just the little bit of prompting. You know, we talk about humans prompting GPD-4, yep. right. but 
you know, what you're experiencing here is GPT-4 prompting the human to just take that extra five or 10 seconds to add that personal touch, to say something personal that might make all the difference to a patient. And so as time has gone on, I have really started to appreciate, not only accept, but really appreciate the value of that, let's call it reverse prompting. Sure. Yeah. Well, I wonder too, if this, you know, you, you've spoken before about the mischaracterization of AI as a computer or a robot. Do you think that might play a role here? And is there maybe a more accurate or helpful way to think about AI? Yeah. Um, it's funny uh, to hear you say that because uh, you're right. I do try to tell people that uh, these large language models aren't computers. And um, maybe it's worth explaining what I mean by that. You know, uh, the mental model that people have of computer, especially a, a doctor or a nurse uh, and most patients, is a machine uh, that first off does perfect memory recall. Uh-huh. And then secondly, does perfect calculation. It turns out that these large language models today, a large language model like GPT-4, actually can't do those things reliably. Hmm. My favorite example is to ask GPT-4 to recite word for word an entire book or a chapter of a book. Uh And it can't do it. It can't do it reliably. Um, And in fact, if it tries, it might uh, hallucinate that chapter of a book. And similarly, if you ask... GPT-4 to do a lot of calculation and you don't allow it to use tools. You don't allow it to write a computer program or use a calculator. Just like a human, oftentimes it'll make mistakes and get the arithmetic wrong. And so it's kind of a strange thing because at first you approach these things as though they're computers and you expect them to remember things perfectly and you expect them to calculate perfectly. But instead, I use the term reasoning engine. Yeah, because it's able to reason very much in ways that remind you of the ways that humans reason and communicate their reasoning to you. And so some things that I, I find incredibly useful uh, if you're a doctor is you might see a patient, get some initial lab test results, and then develop a diagnosis. Uh, one concept there is something called a differential diagnosis which is kind of a, a list of possible uh, diagnoses, typically in the rank order of likelihood. An incredibly useful thing to do is to ask GPT-4, uh, take a look at this. Here's this patient's labs. Here's the initial presentation. Here's my differential diagnosis. Give me a second opinion on this. Is there anything else I, I should think about? Uh, is there something I'm missing? Do you disagree with anything? That kind of second look exercises a kind of reasoning ability that GPT-4 turns out to be just incredibly good at. It's a critiquing and evaluation ability that is incredibly, just incredibly powerful. And it's somehow different from the normal mode of a computer. And so so that's why uh, I've been going around speaking to a lot of leaders in healthcare organizations to just try to explain this thing is not a computer in that traditional sense. Yeah, I think I've even heard you say too that while we all think of generative AI as being this kind of like generation bot, right? It makes things, write me a poem, write me an essay, that that its true superpower is critique and revision and iteration. And I think that's um, kind of interesting. You know, you think about the initial thought as coming from a human perhaps, but then getting 
getting this technology to review and reason it with you. I should add something that's very important there because the medical community, I think, is really thinking very hard about generative AI right now because the stakes are very high. Uh, if mistakes are made, people get hurt. And even the kind of legalities of using generative AI in various ways in medicine have yet to be resolved. And in fact, I think it's exceptionally important for the medical community to, as quickly as possible, take assertive ownership of the questions of whether, when, and how generative AI should be used. And until then, I think it's exceptionally dangerous to use generative AI to propose, let's say, an initial diagnosis of a patient. And it's much better today, uh, in my opinion, to have the human being do the work and then use generative AI as a second set of eyes, yeah. as a way to have an extra check, to give just a little bit of extra thought, and as an initial path to reduce medical errors. You know, if you are a nurse and you are having to calculate the drip rate for administration of medication through uh, IV, that's a very error-prone yeah. process. In fact, I think there have been several studies that show uh, close to 20% of the time uh, that drip rate calculation is done incorrectly. Huh. I would not today say to someone, use GPT-4 to do that calculation. Um, but what I would say is, you should do that calculation and then ask GPT-4 to check your work. Uh -huh. uh, and I think if we do things like that today, we have a great chance to reduce medical errors. That's really interesting. Yeah, I, you know, I know this is a little slightly different topic, but using things like generative AI for creative explorations too, I know I and my team have found that a lot of times the initial pass at the creative problem solving still needs to come from humans. Because what we find from generative AI technologies is that what is provided is often what is expected. However, if we have an initial idea or a creative solution, and then we throw it into uh, ChatGPT and say, like, can you iterate on this? Or how would you approach this, this particular solution? You get a lot of interesting variations on the idea, you know? Yes. Well, one of the things that's interesting there also is medicine uh, very quickly moves from primary care to a uh, specialist. Uh, so if there's some, let's say, some post-tryptococcal issue, then there could be a follow-up with a nephrologist or an endocrinologist. But one of the great things about GPT-4 being a general model is it always has present some expertise in both domains. Yeah. And so one thing we find over and over again is some power in that generality. Yeah, You can actually prompt GPT-4 to say, you are a nephrologist and now think like one. Right. Um, but out of the box, it, it has this sort of ability, I guess the word I would use, uh, to triangulate between multiple specialties. Yeah, interesting. You know, I'm still ruminating on this idea of like the um, public's hesitations on the technology. And, you know, I don't think I'm alone here. I was at a family function earlier this year when the topic of generative AI came up and uh, a relative of mine basically said, I'm scared of AI and I think it's going to destroy us all. And, and so my response was like to try and talk about some of the benefits of AI and generative AI in, in healthcare. And his response was, oh God, in healthcare, that's even worse. So help me navigate this barbecue topic. You must have conversations <laughs> like this every now and then. I, I can definitely connect <laughs> with what you're saying. <laughs> and, 
you know, it's actually a good thing. There are a couple of examples uh, here that I think are worth thinking about. The one that resonates most strongly for me is the early days of genetics and the mapping of the human genome. Sure, yeah. And, you know, that effort is one of the greatest scientific achievements of the modern era. And it was understood as soon as that great thing was accomplished, as soon as we mapped the human genome, that there could be tremendous benefits for humanity. In fact, right. those benefits are being realized. If you think about like CAR T therapy, uh-huh. it's actually yep. you know curing cancers sure, yeah. uh, in people today. Uh, and it all derives from uh, our ability to map the human genome. But at the same time, it was recognized right at the beginning that there could be bad consequences of this. You know, that there could be an engineering of genetics that you know, could be very destructive to life. And so uh, right at the early going, there were tremendous concerns raised, probably around barbecues, uh, uh-huh. just like <laughs> you've experienced. And the whole area of bioethics emerged today. And in, t- in fact, today, there are major conferences in bioethics that are really designed to understand both the potential good and the potential bad, and understand how best to guard against the bad, to mitigate against the bad, and hopefully realize the potential good out of this kind of powerful emerging technology. And so the thing that I feel very good about today is I see the same kinds of kind of push and pull. Okay. The recognition from day one that there could be both tremendous positive benefits for humanity as well as potential dangers. And I see not just your friends around the barbecue talking about this, but the very best minds on the, on the planet thinking really hard about this yeah. uh, right now. And so I think that gives us a chance to realize the benefits while minimizing the risks. And also that what I don't see at all is anyone denying that those risks exist. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that's a good thing. One, one more uh, thing to say about this. There's another analogy I give, which is to imagine, imagine that we've just invented copper wire and we've discovered that it carries electric current efficiently from point A to point B. And we just know that this is going to be a potential positive for human life. In fact, you and I can't live without it. We couldn't have this podcast uh, without that technology. But we also have to recognize that it's dangerous. People can get electrocuted. Yeah. Houses can burn down. Uh, there have to be regulations and guidelines, uh, building codes, uh, the whole sort of infrastructure of safety around these things. And I think uh, AI is a lot like that. AI is like copper wire. It's going to be a foundational technology that we will all depend on. It'll improve our lives. But we also have to recognize that with any powerful technology, there are risks and that we need to understand as we apply this technology for good, that we need to understand how to do that safely. So I guess what I would tell your friend is, yes, every technology has is dual-edged, has both yeah. positive and negative uses. And it's great that you and also leading thinkers and scientists, policymakers, politicians are thinking so hard of, about this right now, that it's giving us a chance to get the good and minimize the bad. Sure, rather than 
reacting with frustration, just be thankful that that is a human instinct and that may help guide us in the right direction, right? A better balanced Absolutely. Um, direction. You know, we hear a lot in the pharmaceutical and biotech industries about using AI, generative AI and, and other forms of AI to speed or improve the discovery of new medicines and maybe even advance us toward curing diseases. Can you talk about Microsoft's investment and interest in that area? Yeah, this is, I think, emerging as a really hot area of research. It, you know, if you think about the models from OpenAI, like the model under ChatGPT, you know, 3.5, GPT 3.5 and GPT 4, they've been trained primarily on the outputs of human thought in action. So what we say and write, and also the images that we record uh, out in the world. But a big question is, would the same neural architectures be useful for non-human data? For example, the data that we get from measuring and observing proteins and cellular structures, the kinds of data that we might observe in nature. You know, is it possible to find better molecules for taking carbon out of the atmosphere? Is it possible to uh, use a neural architecture to have some predictive capability to allow us to do better fusion containment for fusion energy? There are all sorts of questions like this. And as things have been moving forward in our understanding of AI, there's been more and more optimism that the answer is yes. That in the same way that we can build a big neural net to kind of capture so much of the kind of reasoning abilities that human beings have, that these same types of neural architectures can kind of capture the aspects of nature. Mm. Like molecular dynamics and the like. That's right. And so there are several really exciting efforts within Microsoft Research on this. In fact, we have a whole laboratory now called Microsoft Research AI for Science that is looking at the large-scale neural architectures to solve fundamental problems in the modeling of complex physical systems, like complex molecules, like proteins. And as uh, we've gone forward, we've developed new types of uh, neural nets one that is actually now available to other scientists from Microsoft is called a graph former. And graph formers just have this incredibly powerful ability to take complex molecular structures and simulate their dynamics at incredible speeds of over 10 million times faster than we've ever been able to do before. Yeah. And so the hope is that the same types of amazing advances we're seeing in GPT-4 for things like language and vision uh, we'll also start to see in physics, in chemistry, and in biology. We're seeing this not only from Microsoft Research, but from other laboratories around the world in areas like weather modeling, mm. um, trying to discover better molecules for advancing agriculture, medicine, uh, new chemical compounds for better lubricants, just a wide array of possibilities here. And so it's turning into a very, very exciting uh, area. Yeah. You, know, you say weather modeling and my, my instinct is to think about whether or not I should bring an umbrella outside that I'll get better advice <laughs> on that. But I guess in a sense, you could consider it better at predicting natural disasters too, right? Like using AI in some way to do, yeah, bigger stakes, right? Absolutely. In fact, I think that now there are several laboratories on the world, including ours, that are able to predict 
the formation of severe weather patterns at least minutes or a small number of hours ahead. And the hope is that uh, larger amounts of computation uh, to build larger neural models might be able to extend that to days or even weeks. And so uh, if we're able to get that type of predictive power, I think it, it would really uh, help save lives and save property. It's amazing. I'm going to Bring it back to like uh, the average person's experience here in uh, an exposure to to generative AI. I have a question. So, in healthcare communications in this industry, we tend to be very cautious about speculation. But I'm just going to throw it out there. Do you think there's the potential for generative AI to provide, in some way, a direct therapeutic benefit to people? You know, um, uh, as we were saying before, uh, the first thing I say is I, I think it's always best to, uh, especially in any serious uh, medical situation, to rely on the advice of medical professionals. And that today, the safest thing then is to use generative AI as a second opinion, as a second look at things. Now, having said that, I use GPT-4 in my own personal life and management of healthcare all the time. You know, when I uh, get my physical exam, a week later I get in the mail, lab test result, something called the CBC, a complete blood count. And it's just a pile of numbers. I have no idea you know, what it all means. And it's incredibly empowering to have GPT-4 read that over, explain it to me, and allow me to ask questions. You know, seeing my LDL is a little bit elevated. What does that mean? Right. What are my risks? Uh, should I change my diet? Should I change my exercise routine, things along those lines. And this became even more acute when my father was ill for a very long time and was seeing multiple specialists. Uh, that's a very stressful situation, not just for him, but for our whole family as we're trying to figure out how best to care you know, for our parent. And just you know, having GPT-4 give us the advice after reading you know, all of the, this complicated information allowing us to navigate this high-stakes situation is just really empowering. The point here, though, is that in the examples I've given, there is a medical professional involved right, sure. doing work, and GPT-4 is being used to augment what those humans are doing. Maybe underlying your question is a longer-term question. Will there come a day totally uh, when, <laughs> you know, when we will have, you know, a, a doctor AI. And I don't have the answer to that question, but I do think it's very likely that there will come a day when we as patients would have the expectation that doctors will use AI. Uh -huh. And that we would need an explanation from a doctor if for some reason our doctor decided not to use AI. So in the same way that we expect our doctors to use the latest technology to wash their hands uh, before treating us, to you know, make use of whatever latest, greatest technologies uh, and medicines. Appropriate painkillers for when it's needed, et cetera. Yeah. Um, what, it, what I think is uh, inevitable is that we will develop the same expectation that, of course, doctors must use AI to help them treat us better. Huh. But at least at the moment, the way that the world is developing AI is really as a pure augmentation to the work sure. that human beings do, not as a replacement. 
You've touched on some of these things already, but I'm wondering if I could just generally ask, are there other challenges and ethical considerations that we should be thinking of when it comes to implementing AI in healthcare that we haven't already touched on? Well, one of the things that I think about, and I think a lot of technologists think about all the time, has to do with equitable access to healthcare. And um, there are so many dimensions of this. You know, there are over a billion people in the world who will live their entire lives never having seen a doctor, not having any access at all. And so there's always a natural question, uh, can technologies like this at least provide better access to experts' health care? As technologists, we like to think that pure technology can help and solve the problems. Um, but as you get into this, you realize that these are kind of highly multidimensional problems and that technology is one necessary component, but it's far from enough to solve these. But taking a step back, the question of equitable access to health, if AI becomes really essential, as essential as a stethoscope to the practice of medicine, then one fundamental question is how do we ensure that AI becomes as widely available as a stethoscope? Right. And that's uh, one thing that at least here at Microsoft and at OpenAI, our partners at OpenAI, we're very, very committed to figuring out the path to providing that kind of wide availability. Another thing that uh, we think about is uh, we think that, especially in medicine, uh, AI uh, needs some regulatory guardrails. Now on that, I'm really, really pleased to see the medical community uh, just really embracing that need. The American Medical Association just issued uh, some guidelines for the use of generative AI. The National Academy of Medicine in the US uh, has a major uh, study going on to develop an AI code of conduct. And so I think the right things are happening and those can form the foundations for policymakers at places like the Food and Drug Administration to develop appropriate uh, regulations. But that's also extremely important. And um, I am starting to see the top medical schools now thinking hard about how to integrate the teaching of whether, when, and how to use generative AI into the medical education of new doctors. So all of those right things are happening. But it, I have to stress, it's just such early days uh, right now. Yeah. I mean, even I will say I, I had two kids, 12 and 14, in, in school, and they, they both are being encouraged by their teachers. I was a little surprised, but also... Uh, happy to hear, encouraged by their teachers to learn how to use, you know, ChatGPT and Dolly and things like that, rather than just, you know, banning it, like I think was the original instinct, right? Like no using generative AI to write anything. Now it's like, no, 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 for this assignment, I want you to do it and, and see what you can do. Well, one thing there uh, educationally that I really love, and I've seen it used um, in both middle schools as well as in medical school, is to ask GPT-4 to role play with you. So in middle school, uh, I, I was talking to a teacher uh, who had a lesson plan. She had a lesson plan for a class on um, a world history and the subject of Christopher Columbus uh -huh. and the discovery of the new world. And uh, she assigned to her students to ask ChatGPT to play act the role of Christopher Columbus as he was just about to embark on his journey and that the student had to be a reporter, a newspaper reporter interviewing Christopher Columbus. Oh, it's funny. Just for leaving. And so the assignment was to conduct that interview and then you had to turn in the transcript. 
and also write a, a short newspaper story. And the similar thing I see now in a few medical schools where you don't just answer a multiple choice diagnostic uh, question based on the medical vignette, but instead ask GPT-4 to play the role of the patient described in this vignette and then have an encounter uh, with you uh, as a doctor. And these sorts of things just really provide new dimension of learning where it's incredibly active. It's not just like multiple choice problem. Uh, you actually have to interact with, you know, a simulation of a living being and understand exactly what to do. Hearing you describe this, I'm wondering if this has implications into the market research industry, you know, like play acting or representing a certain type of person reacting to a certain kind of campaign or messaging. Kind of interesting. So, okay, I'm, I'm going to wrap it up with a little challenge for you. <laughs> I want to ask you two lighthearted personal questions, one written by me and the other written by ChatGPT, and you have to guess <laughs> which is which, okay? <laughs> Are you game? I'm in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, here they come in no particular order. First question, if you could have dinner with any fictional character, who would it be and why? Wow. Uh, any fictional character. <laughs> you know, uh, the fictional character that's been on, on my mind the most, and this is going to come across as really silly, is uh, Fern Arable, who was the little girl, the eight-year-old girl in the book Charlotte's Web. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I've actually been having a lot of conversations with Fern Arable because I've been <laughs> um, in trying to explain to non-technical newcomers what generative AI is, I've been using the example of Charlotte's Web. I've been asking the question, have you read the book Charlotte's Web? Most people in the U.S. who have grown up in the U.S. have. Uh -huh. And uh, I asked the question, you know, what does that book try to teach us about the value of friendship? And that's a hard question to answer because there are no words in the book that answer that question. Sure, yeah. You have to read between the lines. You have to connect to social context and to life experiences. And it, what's amazing is that GPT-4 has read Charlotte's Web and can answer that question with surprising sophistication. And then I turn the question into one that says, okay, now let's play a game. You pretend to be Fern Arable. I'm a doctor and Fern is coming to me <laughs> <laughs> with an issue of some swelling in her lower legs. Uh, that started after a fever that kept her home from school last week. And we have this kind of conversation. And so it would be, after having uh, used that example a few times, it would be kind of cool to actually meet Fern <laughs> for real. <laughs> That's funny. And see how accurate the representation was. Sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It sounds like you're actually, through this conversation, building a, a character, a persona that you're then interacting with. That's, that's really interesting. Okay, so that was the first question. The second question is, what was the first band that you saw perform live, and are you still a fan? <laughs> Boy, that would be... That's a difficult one. Um, oh, I, I now remember. This is... Do I really have to answer this? This is embarrassing. I mean, it would be cool <laughs> if you did. <laughs> um, so it would be... I, I was probably not even in high school. It was Kiss. Nice. Oh, that's not <laughs> embarrassing. That's amazing. <laughs> and uh, let's see, when am I still a fan? I haven't listened to Kiss probably in 20 years. Um, 
but I yeah, place in your I heart, but yes. not necessarily on your playlist. Sure. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, now which one was written by Chad GPT and which one was written by me? I'm guessing the second one was Chad GPT. The second one was me. Wow. <laughs> yep. Yep. So I, uh, it sounds like, um, this, this particular AI passed the tests, uh, and, um, and either way, I think both questions, both the one written by chat GPT and me helped us get to know you a little better. So I guess in the end, that's really what's important, right? Well, you know, I, I don't know who came out the worst, uh, amongst, uh, you, me, or chat GPT on that. <laughs> I, I suspect yeah. it was me. <laughs> leave that, leave that to the listeners to judge. Absolutely. Well, Peter, listen, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I, it was really a great conversation. So thanks for having me on. Want more episodes of the Real Chemistry Podcast? Subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts. We post a new episode every Thursday. Visit realchemistry.com for more info.